can we take that out? <laughs> I'm leaving that in. <laughs> Welcome to the Need and Reaction podcast. My name's Nick Abnett and I'm here to talk to photographers who have lived and captured the essence and excitement of youth subculture, both here in the UK and further afield. In this episode, I'll be talking to Neil Massey, a man responsible for many iconic shots from his work as editorial photographer for magazines such as The Face and Sleaze Nation. I'll be talking to him about his early days, the underground metal scene in Vietnam, his recent exhibition, Disposable Teens, The Way I Am, and his ongoing Kaleidoscapes project. Images and links are available with this podcast, and I highly recommend you check out Neil's website for loads more visual goodness. Hello, Neil. Hello, Nick. Thank you for having me. Thank you for inviting me. I was inspired by your recent exhibition, Disposable Teens, The Way I Am fantastic collection it was a series of photographs that i took when eminem and marilyn manson performed at the london arena in early 2001 there was a frenzy in the media at the time about them as artists so i think it was like a hot ticket for the young people going to see the gig so yeah, I, I was effectively shooting for the Face magazine and I was really interested in the fans. I've always been interested in the fans. I, I liked taking live pictures of artists, but to me, the fans were always where I wanted to be doing the pictures. So I did a whole bunch of pictures outside the gig a couple of hours before. Uh, a bunch of straight up portraits and sort of documentary shots. And then I did go into the gig and do some live stuff as well. So yeah, somehow putting them together in the same zine was a conversation that I had with Lisa at the Museum of Youth Culture. How did you get involved with the Museum of Youth Culture in the first place? I've actually known those guys in another permutation, which was PYMCA, Photographic Youth Music Culture Archive, mm. which is the same guy, John, who set it up okay. back in the early 2000s. It was like the first youth culture picture library. Mm. Yeah, it was the first one that was just geared purely towards mm. housing youth culture imagery. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that's how it started. And then I think it eventually it sort of morphed into or changed into the Museum, Museum of Youth, youth culture. culture. Yeah. Have you seen that book, The Bag I'm In? I think it's Sam Nee. No. It's a similar thing, yeah, very, very similar thing. I don't what, think it's... What, what's the... What, the premise is just, yeah, it's British youth culture, basically, and it just goes in the same sort of way. It's just they ask people just to send in their personal pics and they ah. just, you know, put them all together in a book. But um, Yes. Yeah, because actually that, that it's interesting you say that because PYMCA was initially photographers right. that were working in that field, mm. whether it be through magazines or just, just out of their own interest. Yeah. And... That's how the Museum of Youth Culture started. I think okay. they got like 10, whatever, 15 sort of photographers mm. that had good kind of catalogues or archives. Mm. But then I think their aim was always to get the general public mm. to submit and send in yeah. pictures of their yeah. their childhood and yeah. their friend groups and their tribes. So, And that's where it's kind of really at now. And that's... You know, that's how it's going to grow and yeah. become, you know, brilliant in a way. Yeah, I think it's it's a bit more real, isn't it, obviously? Yeah. It's a bit more real. And yeah. it's kind of... What I love about those Polaroids of people when they're a teenager is just... 
you know, you can see what they're going for, and that's what makes it really interesting. I think. Yeah, you know, I'm a documentary photographer, so I've always loved real life. And the thing about anybody's pictures, you know, whether it be on a little point and shoot or a little snappy snap film camera, whatever is 20, 30 years later, it doesn't matter how rubbish the framing is. There's something really authentic and beautiful about mm. the fashion, the, the expressions yeah. that you might have taken of your group of friends. Yeah, You can't mimic that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was curious about the energy of the individuals in a way because it is really interesting that you're you're capturing them outside the gig. So they're in a kind of a completely different mindset to what they will be when they're in the gig because obviously when you're at a gig, people are so engrossed in watching the, the artist or the band or whatever, then they kind of don't really give a fuck if someone's taking a picture or not. If someone's being watched, having their photograph taken, you know, how does that change the way that person feels? You know, they're more likely to have a little bit of a pose and... Yeah, it's yeah, different no, energy. Isn't no, it? no, absolutely. Yeah, they're feeling pretty, pretty excited that yeah. that they might have been asked to have a picture. Yeah. I mean, the thing I really liked about that set, though, as well, is there might be ten, fifteen people in a shot mm. behind a barrier, yeah. and they're all, you know, giving me the middle finger yeah. and shouting at me and stuff. Yeah. And then there were singular portraits, so there would be yeah. certain people that I, you know, like the way they dressed or they had a certain attitude or vulnerability or whatever it is. So there's a nice combination of, mm. of group shots. and But they're with their friends, so they're feeling really in a good place. And you're right, they're not distracted by the music. Mm. So it's actually a really good time to get amongst a, a whole tribe of fans. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Because they're, they're feeling quite secure in a, in a way, yeah. they're with their it friends. Is, yeah, yeah. The difference between taking a picture of them there and, say, in a studio, okay, you get a nice clean shot on a clean background with their fashion and everything but yeah. it wouldn't be as interesting you know they're there drinking with their friends and having a laugh and kind of you know yeah that's excited about the gig yeah yeah well, that's funny because one of my questions was is the public environment more conducive to capturing someone's spirit as opposed to a studio environment and you've kind of answered that question really um, absolutely 100 yeah. percent. think there's there's an element of maybe more theater and performance mm. in a studio environment right you know, and you might be able to use lighting to make it more dramatic. Mm. And maybe for some bands, that's kind of how they want to portray themselves. There's yeah, a, yeah, course, an element yeah. of theatre and yeah. and, and, sh- and acting out a character. That's where that sort of studio environment kind of works. Yeah. But I think for fans, I've taken a lot of pictures over the years in clubs or at festivals, and it's a much better environment mm. to photograph them in mm. um, because they're, that's where they want to be. Yeah. And also and, and they're it, relaxed and they're kind of having a good time at this yeah. place. And it's a snapshot as well. Yeah. They're yeah, always yeah. taken really yeah. quickly, these pictures. They're not laboured because no one's got that kind of patience. Yeah. Especially yeah, when you're true. a teenager. Yeah. You know, you've got to go in there and just quickly. And that's yeah. what being a documentary okay. photographer is about, really, as well, is capturing moments quickly. So you are literally just kind of bang. Yeah. So yeah. people don't really even have a chance to pose. Yeah, yeah. yeah you know, um, okay, some some pictures are taken of a scene and by asking, it's going to disturb something interesting that's going on. Mm. So you're documenting what you see in front of you as, a say, a group scene or something like that. 
and you'll go in and you'll quickly take that shot. But all the portraits where they're looking straight to camera, I'm obviously yeah. having a quick chat with them, yeah. asking their name, saying if it's all right to take a picture. Yeah. I think they look great, you know, whatever. So they're, they're a bit more ready for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. But it still only lasts maybe two or three minutes. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's okay. a quick thing. Yeah. All their friends are watching, maybe taking the mickey out of them. Yeah, yeah. You know, the whole thing's kind of can be quite funny. Yeah. And then you sure. then you pull out the one that's, you know, being all mouthy. Yeah. Right, you're next. <laughs> yeah. You know, and the whole thing becomes oh, a bit... Oh, shy now. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then they're all laughing and, you know, and then that way you can almost get other shots of the whole thing kind of just evolving and you're kind of interacting with them. I think that's kind of the fun bit. Yeah. Um, let's go back to uh, way back. So I was reading your blog, kept me up really late last night, <laughs> very entertaining, but... Um, yeah, I was going. I dropped you a bit of homework late. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, no, that's some good. dense blog work. That answered. Yeah, that answered a lot of uh, questions that I I did have. So, like, when did you first get a camera? Uh, I think first camera was uh, Olympus OM10. The reason I remember this camera is I was about fifteen, and I think my dad. I don't know. He must have got it quite cheap secondhand because it was quite an old camera. But anyway, I started taking pictures at school, and I realised that why were my pictures all turning out blurry? Thought, oh, I'm just an idiot. I don't know how to use a camera. And then I realised a few years later that that particular camera had a manufacturing fault with the shutter speed, um, and it wasn't actually my fault. Wow. So the first camera I had, it gave me a lot of problems. But mm. and I was kind of like, oh, do I just not get this? Yeah. But only years later, I found out that there was a problem with wow. the actual camera but anyway i sort of muscled through and got another camera eventually but i guess you know i wanted to kind of learn how to use a camera mm. from quite early on why was that um i needed a piece of artwork for my um art exam at school so last year of school and i was doing some charcoal drawings of snakes I, was, I made a paper mache naked woman who was representing earth and there was a war scene going on around it um and photography a mate of mine martin his stepdad had a dark room and i needed a bit of artwork like sharpish and martin was like hey why don't you do a photography piece i mean um, having having access to a dark room at that age yeah quite... yeah you're right at that age because it was it was extracurricular it wasn't something we were doing at school mm. Martin was quite sort of geeky and he he was learning. He had learned quite a lot at 15. And we just started taking pictures. <laughs> like, I remember pictures in his garden, learning how to use fast shutter speeds mm. and things like that. So we would, like, smash glass and try and capture it right. with, like, really fast shutter speeds yeah, yeah. so we could see it all flying through the air. Yeah. So that was, like, one of the early things. And then we went over and photographed Banger Racing, the demolition derby over in Aldershot. And that was brilliant i've never seen anything like that where it just it's a figure of eight the track yeah and the cars just they never use their brakes and yeah. they just keep going round, and then they just smash into each other so anyway that was the first that was the project that i used for my right okay art exam went into his dad's his stepdad's dark room martin showed me how to process my first roll of film wow which was that i mean yeah it's it Amazing. was like magic well, yeah that's that's beautiful that's yeah. a real pivotal moment absolutely mm. yeah that was it that was the hook Wow. You know, to, and I still feel very lucky and very appreciative to Martin, actually, mm. for getting me into it. Yeah, to go into... Photography. To, right? Yeah, to be that, able to go in that deep yeah, at an early age. Yeah, Incredible. and the nice thing was it was all done really organically. Mm. There was no big, hey, I'm going to be a photographer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that sort of came later on, I guess. Was it uh, art... Oh, it was art CSE, CSE at, at CSE. Park. Right, uh, yes, yes, at that stage, it was 
purely to get a piece in for my art exam. I got a grade one, I think. That's really good. Which That's was equivalent of an O-level, right? It was equivalent of an O-level, yeah. Which I didn't get many O-levels at school. So I got that and English Lit. I did English Lit O-level and I passed. And that, so I got English Lit and Art. And that Two was O-levels. it. Put it there, mate. Two O-levels. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and in English language, I think I got... I got a U or something. Yeah, I got terrible. I did it early. I was so good at it. Really? Yeah, I did it. Early. Yeah. I so did that was your language. Early. So that was your. That's that, the one you got. That was my specialist subject. Brilliant English language. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. And what else did you get then? You got uh, what two. Else did I get. I got English language, and I don't think I got. I, I didn't get. I didn't get art. It was my favourite subject, but I didn't because of Mrs. Piesse. God rest her soul. Yeah. Um, she marked me down quite a bit because she didn't like the fact that I outlined everything with black ink tagging Gra- yeah it was yeah. a graffiti yeah because you were kind of yeah. into it at that point <laughs> yeah. weren't you yeah everything had to she, she fold just out didn't like. really get the, yeah. the no she yeah. didn't get it no anyway picking up the camera the last year of school was coinciding with like really getting into music you know i was kind of in i wouldn't say i was really early i kind of like the jam and stuff like that when i was 11 12 I was guilty of still liking like the Miami Vice soundtrack and things like that. So, you know, I was a bit, I was a little bit all over the place. Well, I remember Andrea, my sister, she was getting into punk and all the rest of it. She gave me a five pound record voucher for for Christmas. And I bought the Miami Vice soundtrack because I was watching it on TV at the time. I was, it still sounds good. And, um, I think I might still have it, but, um, and she was really angry with me. <laughs> wasted yeah, wasted, wasted the money. So it was around that time, actually, I'd say 15, I sort of really started getting into music mm. properly. And, and actually, The The right. Soul Mining album okay. was the first, in my mind, like proper music. Right, yeah, yeah. You okay. know, like kind yeah. of a bit deep and a yeah, bit kind of yeah. challenging and yeah. kind of interesting. It was, I guess, the, the awakening that happens in teenagers. Mm. You know, and as I say, like the the was kind of quite political, okay, right. um, music, and quite, but also quite kind of a little bit nasal, na- nasal, na- <laughs> nasal. Na- na- navel. What's it? Oh, navel gazing, navel gazing. A little bit kind of, which is what you do, of course, yeah, in yeah, those yeah, kind yeah. of teens. Yeah. So, you know, I started writing a bit of poetry when I was into the the. It's around fifteen years yeah. old which is highly embarrassing, but, you know, that's something that you kind of get into. So, yeah, yeah that a, kind of angst and right of making art about, you know, war and, you mm. know, the big subjects yeah. that you, yeah. you know, think you're getting into, but not really. But Yeah. Is there a particular the, the track you uh, would like to play me now? Yeah, I would uh, like to suggest um, This Is The Day okay. from uh, the, the Soul Mining album. Okay. I think there's a line. This is the day your life will surely change. This is the day where things fall into place. It's a very kind of um, it's a it's a beautifully poetic, inward-looking, self-examination type song, yeah. and um, trying to self-improve, but kind of realizing your faults and all that kind of thing. So, it, it, interestingly for me, like yeah, it kind of hit a nerve. Fifteen years old. Mm. Um, but also listening to it again as an adult, it's quite a reflective song because mm. he's kind of looking at himself and his life. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, listening to it again as an older person, it still kind of it has a different different kind of yeah, yeah. poignancy, yeah, yeah. which is kind of interesting. 
Um, and then following on from the, the it was punk bands and mm. uh, that kind of thing. So all of that was kind of happening at the same time, that last year of school. Then in sixth form, I took pictures of Furore, a local punk band. I remember that. And, and that was my first kind of like band pictures. Because mm. I was, you know, obviously seeing album covers and all yeah. the rest of it, or seeing press in the NME or mm. Melody Maker of pictures of bands and i started to think hey i could i could do that so you were directing yeah 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 yeah. it was the first i i I, it's actually a really nice set i I put them on the blog and i actually quite like them still um right jump off that wall now yeah 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 yeah. and they're (laughs) look forlorn and they're posing angry they're posing like peacocks as well (laughs) you know and they were quite enjoying because they you know they mostly hadn't had like that kind of band shots done they might have had some live pictures anyway so yeah, I kind of that was the beginning of maybe understanding where as a photographer I was going to be a bit more behind, yeah yeah by the camera obviously yeah so yeah so you did have an understanding of how it worked and you had a, an eye for it obviously yeah I, I guess because I was getting interested in photography I was kind of equating the two things mm. like music bands covers press. I remember I I used a picture of Furore and I did a poster that I put up in Kingfisher Music in Fleet in Hampshire. Brilliant. To offer my services as a right, okay. as a as a band photographer. Yeah. Um I think I, I remember I think I've still got it somewhere cuz I'm a bit of a hoarder. It's like cheap rates and stuff like that. <laughs> And I wouldn't have had a phone number. It would have been like home phone number time, wouldn't it? Just address. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't even. No, it would have been a home phone number, but it wouldn't have been a mobile number back no, then. No, no, no. Late no. 80s. Yeah. Really funny. Amazing. Get much work? No. <laughs> Get any work. Um, so, yeah, just that's a push through, really. Mm. But anyway. So, 1987. Girls, music, and photography. Okay. Yeah. Something, something, something. But no, you mentioned the milk race. What is the milk race? I don't remember the milk race. You mentioned the milk race, and you basically you mentioned the milk race, the bike, and the Brighton bike race. Oh, I was <laughs> that Jimmy Savile thing. <laughs> yeah, we were, I was going to come on to Sir James Savile OBE. Um, yeah, you mentioned that you. Uh, I think it was the Brighton bike race, and you mentioned you managed to get. Oh, some... it, it was my yeah, good friend Julian Topill's dad was organising it or something. Right, okay, so yeah. yeah, it might have been a gig. Might have been a first gig, even. Okay. I don't. I don't well, even. You, as in, I don't think I was. You were requested to. I was requested to shoot. Yeah. So but, I was going to ask. So, the, so you took pictures of Sharon Davis, yes. the Olympic swimmer. Yes. Uh, some bloke out of the Lighty Lads. Right. Which one of them? <laughs> no idea. Uh, and, I bet before my time, the Lighty Lads. But yeah. So they weren't just candid shots of them over a wall. Yeah, I, I, I think. Um, I think they were to camera. I, I, well, okay, right. I don't know if I. Again, I've been reasonably good at keeping archive, but some of the really early films, I'm not sure if I've got them. I think they were just like uh, straight to camera mm, yeah, por- yeah, portrait sure. in situ. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, yeah, which actually, yeah, which would have been quite. Which is, yeah, 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 yeah. For me, were, yeah, it was the know, first well-known people, first well-known people that I would have taken pictures of. Yeah, great and. First gig that was for free, but, you know, it was access, mm. which is kind of always an interesting subject matter for a photographer, yeah. or wherever you're shooting, yeah. you know, because if you can get access either mm. behind somewhere that you're not supposed to be or other people aren't supposed to be, that kind of creates an interesting, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. 
Yeah, I was going to say when we were talking about being a teenager and getting into music, you know, those that images, those images are so strong, a bit particularly of, of people. You know, they're people you look up to, they're people you admire, they're people you want to look like, they're people you want to hang out with. For me, anyway, and and obviously for you, and I think a big part of that is music and people. They're just people are just so fascinating. You know, I know that for some people, butterflies and landscapes are fascinating, but that's not really um, my cup of tea necessarily. Nothing wrong with it. If I'm honest, that didn't really dawn on me. The photographers that I was looking at when I was a student were all taking portraits of real people or they were documentary photographers. It really dawned on me, I think, I guess, early 2000s. Okay. Like, just in real time, I was like, okay, yeah, I'm beginning to get some kind of interesting work here that could be, hopefully, be interesting in years to come. Yeah, yeah. But that, that sort of dawned on me, I'd say... Yeah, about 20 years ago. You hear angst in music. You see it in fashion statements that people make. And I was wondering if you think that angst can be seen in the photography of youth. You know, can you see certain energies that come from pictures that right. have been taken uh, uh, by the, Now or then? Well, yeah, when, just, yeah, just generally. Yeah, just generally. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. Um, you know, especially when you know, I'm looking on Instagram every day and I'm looking at pictures of clubs um or subcultures that young photographers are that are kind of involved in that scene are doing now sometimes it doesn't really come through it's just a it's just a fashion thing you can just see the a, a night out but other photographers are capturing the the energy of that particular evening so yeah now I can definitely see it I guess what's interesting as well when you were asking that question I was thinking about the comparison in a way of of me going to a friend's punk gig when we were 17 mm. locally you know like we used to go to the local gigs even though the pictures weren't that good they were taken of me totally immersed in it mm. but obviously there was a shift as I got older let's say go to the um Marilyn Manson M&M gig I'm I'm older yeah. And I'm not their age anymore. Yeah. But it resonates with yeah, me. Yeah. And I kind of get it. And maybe I'm in more of a kind of experienced headspace, being slightly removed by age, mm. to kind of document it in a slightly different way. Yeah. Yeah. In a slightly more thoughtful way. Or, yeah. whereas before it would have been, you know, when I was really young and it was the scene that I was involved in. I was kind of just literally pint in one hand and a camera in the other. Yeah, yeah. And and, yeah. and that's, you know, that's what I'm saying about the work that I'm seeing on Instagram. That's that kind of work mm-hmm. that I'm seeing now, yeah. which is the younger people who are involved in the scene yeah. documenting it. Yeah, from, from within. Which is great to see, yeah. you know. Yeah, because I guess, I guess when you really break it down as a photographer photographing uh, a scene there are two ways you you are either photographing it from the inside totally because you're literally doing it or you're photographing it slightly detached but then I don't always think that's a bad thing as a photographer mm. because you're kind of you're able to observe it in a slightly different way mm. it's just a two different approaches yeah it might seem a bit more heroic if you're totally in the middle of it mm. but maybe you're not always going to be able to be in the middle of it yeah I think with the early pictures that I took when we were into all the Grebo bands yeah you know gay bikers on acid and crazy head and yeah. probably yourself yeah. and all those bands you know when we were going to Reading Rock Festival it was just totally living it then yeah yeah um 
in the thick of it. Literally. And then after that, for me, the next thing was rave, and I was totally living that. So the funny thing is, there's the, there is a connection there, Reading Rock Festival and rave, right? Yeah. For you, yeah, yeah, that was the crossover point for me. 1988, I think it was. Me, Clive, and a small group, we heard about some little sort of acid house night in a wine bar in Reading Town Centre. We nipped out of the festival just to go and check it out. Took a little micro dot, half a micro dot. If you can cut them in half, don't even know if you can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, and yeah, had our first kind of experience of something a bit more psychedelic. Brilliant. Even though, interestingly, sort of the Grebo bands were totally into all that anyway. Right, right. So maybe that that's where yeah. maybe that's where the cross because you know, gay bikers on acid. It was all kind of psychedelic mm. mishmash of yeah. kind of. And also, drugs and, and, and music had electronic stuff going on, didn't they? So yeah, they, they, you know, they were obviously. I, I got the impression they were no strangers to hip hop and sort of acid house. And yeah, stuff. I never forget. I came back from that night and I was in my tent. And I had my little personal stereo on. My Walkman. I was listening to Damsky, and I was closing my eyes, and I had that sort of chaos theorem psychedelic mm. light show in my eyelids. Just, fractals. Yeah, yeah, fractals. Yeah. So, yeah, that was kind of... And, and, you know, I think that's from then on. It's sort of... That was our little gateway right. into getting into Rave. Amazing. Rave. And and it, and it was kind of seamless, really, because the raves that we were going to over, down, out in Hampshire were in fields, and they mm. were run by the travellers. Mm. So it was almost like we weren't suddenly going to clubs up in London. No, no, that okay. came a little bit later, but... Yeah. But yeah, that transition of sort of free DIY right, okay, yeah, parties yeah. Um, that the travellers were were holding that was mm. our kind of yeah route, yeah route in yeah 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 like you say it was kind of a fusion already yeah way, wasn't there of yeah the lifestyles and the and the the party. and 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 that in effect led me out to Thailand yeah okay when was the first time you went to Thailand. I went to Thailand in um, October 1990, so I was 19. Okay. And because I'd read in ID magazine in August issue in 1990, I've still got a copy of it, about this sort of rave paradise, so dancing on the beaches. And it was kind of more, again, more hippie. Hmm. It was kind of just a bunch of hippies from Goa that used to go down to Hmm. Thailand and just party down there for full moon parties and things like that. So yeah, I've I've read this article and I was I, my mind was already sort of yeah, yeah, crackling. Yeah. I think I worked at my dad's construction site for a few months, mm. to save up some money, but I was out there three months later. Wow! How long for? Three months. Three months. You were there for three months. Yeah, wow. I went with a friend Simon for a month because he just took her off work, and then he came home, and then I stayed for another two, and you know, travelled around the country student of photography mm. so I was kind of like just really interested in street photography taking pictures travel photography so I was, I was doing that I was writing a diary which I've still got right which is kind of hilarious and yeah ended up partying for a whole month over Christmas and New Year down on Copenhagen. how many pictures were you taking at that time were you was I was shooting on, I was shooting on um color transparency and black and white film okay and I think I I've got a diary entry where I was sending rolls of film. Mm. I was posting them back to my mum and dad with instructions, like, keep them in the fridge, (laughs) you know. And um, not that it really mattered, but I I think it sounded... I'd heard some photographers talk about stuff like that. It sounded kind of pro. 
dispatches from <laughs> Thailand. Also, in the, get them in the fridge. You know they're going to be there. Right? Yeah. They're not going to get shifted around. Yeah. And, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I shot. I, I, I don't know. I reckon I shot about forty or fifty rolls in total. Okay, right. Yeah, yeah, great. Um, that must be exciting to come home to. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I would have processed all the black and whites, but the colour stuff would have gone off to the lab. Mm. The thing that I'm quite impressed with with myself is with the partying pictures on the island. I I was involved. Yeah, in the okay. party, in. right? And I was somehow managed to kind of operate. Yeah, okay. <laughs> like a, a proper camera. Yeah, where I had to do the apertures and all the rest of it. So pretty good hit rate then, really. Not bad. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, if I really look at how many pictures I came back with, there's not loads. Yeah, right. but there's mm, of the partying itself. When I edited it down, I've got like I've got I've got about sixty good pictures, which right. isn't bad. Oh, yeah, over yeah. like course of several parties. Yeah. So I was quite proud of myself, mm. like as an older Neil looking back at yeah, younger yeah, Neil. Good. But well yeah. done, son. Yeah, yeah, no, that's good. Because you know, I, I know that kind of negotiating between operating cameras and just going full on out mm. into the party zone was, you know, challenging. Yeah, times. I mean, there must uh, surely there's occasions where you think, "Oh, for fuck's sake, I can't be bothered to take the cameras." You know, I'm going yeah. to be partying tonight. I- yeah, no, yeah, no, you're right. I think there were a few parties that I didn't take it to, but. Going back to the importance of documenting these things, I'm really glad I did because when I search online, there's I can't see any pictures of, wow. that, of that era. Wow, on and that con- island, considering how many people, yeah, would have. Yeah. It's, it's a big thing, right? Yeah, so they are out there. I'm sure there are some mm. pictures out there, but I'm glad that I've got a record of it. Yeah, yeah, and you know, it's something that I'm working with a friend of mine, designer Josh. There's a book in the works. As I said, I've got written diary as well of that yeah, trip. I, I hope there's going to be excerpts from the diary. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've, I've, I've submitted to the embarrassing nature of it all and just said, well, you know, it's my 19-year-old self, yeah. so you've got to allow whatever... Yeah. Nonsense comes yeah, out. Yeah, no, that's great. Right. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. So you, you, you want yeah. to tell the whole no, story, No, it's a good really. combo, photos and words yeah, from yeah, that. Yeah, definitely, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Has cinema had a big influence on your photography? Because I remember years ago, you told me how much you love Koyanaskatsi. Koyanaskatsi. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I still listen to the soundtrack, actually. Okay. Philip Glass. How would you describe a film like that, uh, visually? Oh, well, Skatsi in the ancient Hopi Native American language means life out of control, life out of balance. Okay. So the film was kind of about that. It was quite, it was quite conceptual, I'd say. But it's kind of like a montage of time-lapse photography, which is moving image, and of nature and of urban cities with this kind of dark Philip Glass soundtrack. Mm. So I think that was in my late teens I, I first sort of saw that. I remember our college tutor put us onto it at photography college. Oh, so it was direct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was like, oh, you guys got to see this. Oh, okay. It came out in the late 70s, I think, and he told us about when he was a student, five minutes into the film, everyone was like lighting up spliffs because <laughs> it was a bit like, it's that kind of film. Yeah, yeah. You know. Um, but yeah, he recommended that film to us students. Right, okay. That which, makes perfect you know, sense. we were all totally on board. Yeah, yeah. For anything kind of stimulating. I think that was the first thing I saw as well that was kind of just really visual, but with audio. That was quite a powerful film for me. In a way, that leads me on to the Order and Chaos collection. Yeah. How did Order and Chaos come about as, a, as an idea or a concept? Order and Chaos is 30 years in the making, I would say. Okay. 
because all of it is informed from my rave days. Going back to lying in that tent and right, listening okay. to Adamski, yeah, yeah. Fractals. Yeah. I think during lockdown, me and my wife, we saw a brilliant Channel 4 documentary called Secret Life of Chaos. Okay. And it was all about what chaos means in nature and how patterns are formed, how rivers are formed and the, the structures and patterns. Mm. And it's all about the two things working hand in hand, order and chaos. Mm. Um, there's not one or the other. You, you need both for nature to yeah. operate and work. Anyway, it's a great documentary. I do recommend it. Um, so watch that. And then a lockdown was happening and... Basically, the first collection were inspired by some rave artworks I did back in the 90s. They were like these little fluoro pieces of art. When you say artwork, as in... Painting, painting, like acrylic. Yeah, yeah, during my rave days, I just made these little fluoro. I I think it was kind of... It came from the fact that people were doing artwork to stick on a wall. You know, Mm. when you're having a party or something, and you might just do some fluoro art because we had a black light or something like that. So we were just dicking about with fluoro art, let's call it. And um, anyway, so I photographed some of this art that I did with acrylic paints and then lit it with black light, photographed it, and then kind of forgot about it. During lockdown, I started scanning my NEG archive. I started to digitise it. And I came across this one sheet of photographs of Mm. my fluoro art. So I scanned the negs. So I had them now as like a digital file. And I was just kind of enjoying seeing them again and seeing all the fluoro colours and all the rest of it. And then I just started playing around with them in Photoshop, started Mm. to manipulate the colours, change them. And then I just did this thing where I just thought, oh, wow, it'd be quite interesting if I just flip the picture another way and put it next to each other. Mm. It suddenly looked a bit like a sort of chaos. Yeah. I was just playing. Yeah. During lockdown. Yeah. A lot of time on our hands. I just started playing. And then I'd flip it again, and suddenly it was creating these other patterns, mm. colourful patterns. That's how kaleidoscapes yeah. were born. And collide as in kaleidoscopes. Yeah. That was a kind of another sort of thing it looked like. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I, the name ends up kind of coming from the idea of escaping. Because for about a month or two, I was just really getting into this these artworks where mm. I was just playing with them in Photoshop and and it was really bright and colourful and it felt like an escape. Yeah, so that's where yeah, the sure. name Collider Escapes comes from. And then second lockdown, I think it was, I thought I'd like to push this idea on a little bit further and work with black light and fluoro paint or powders. And then it snowed. I think it was the February second lockdown. I thought, oh wow, I'm gonna I'm gonna take the fluoro powders they use for fishing that are kind of not bad for the environment, apparently. Although it looks like there might be. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, apparently it's biodegradable and it seems to be all right. Yeah. So anyway, I took it outside with a black light and I used the snow as like a canvas. Nice. But in nature, mm. because obviously going back to the documentary, it was kind of integral. Yeah. This whole thing shapes patterns, yeah. chaos in nature. So I really like this idea of kind of going out into nature mm. to create these artworks. So once I had my pictures, like I did before with these pictures of the artworks, I started playing around with them, manipulating okay. them. Yeah. And that's how order and chaos was involved. And that's how you got involved yeah. um, eventually with creating some music mm. to kind of go with these because I started to animate them. 
yeah. these, these images, one of these little mini animations. The first collection I called Rave On because it was literally directly yeah. referenced from artworks that I'd made yeah. 30 years ago. The second collection, they're all kaleidoscapes, but it was just a different way of doing it. I wanted to move on a little bit because I didn't want to keep using the old yeah, rave yeah. artwork. I'd finished with that. So I just wanted to evolve it on. But I noticed you've also used just other images between that painting and the ah yes and the yes ones. yes yes i've been playing with street photography let's say mm. but by the nature of how the kaleidoscapes are made where you multiply the image they create shapes and patterns that weren't that weren't there before mm. and i think that's something that i'm kind of interested in yeah well you can create something completely new every time yeah like you can have a portrait of someone and by flipping the image and multiplying it mm. it, it creates a whole other pattern yeah. yeah and to the point that if you went really big with it and you kept doing it you wouldn't even recognize what yeah. the initial yeah sort of core image is and maybe it matters maybe it doesn't i can imagine it's very engrossing when you're in the process of yeah and it's exciting because yeah. i don't know where it's going to yeah. end yeah yeah, yeah. You know, you're kind of um it's unpredictable yeah and, and sometimes you know you get to an end point and you're like yeah that's all right and there's other imagery which you start with that ends up creating this whole other pattern or shape or kind of thing, a being. I don't know. It's well, a, a journey into the unknown. And, and in a way, you know, that that's where that kind of coming back to the nature thing of, of nature evolving and developing and there's an organic growth in there somehow. A lot of the time with more creative work that I do, it's maybe only later on that I sort of realise where the, even where the influences yeah, are from. Yeah. Sometimes it's kind of, you know, yeah, right, okay, this is about that. But with the kaleidoscapes, I almost feel like it is 30 years in the making. Yeah. It's almost just a combination of everything coming out in different ways. I liked the idea of the uh, the invisible psychedelic thread that's kind of threading through a whole bunch of things I've been through and suddenly kaleidoscapes happens. And mm. it's nothing to do with documentary photography that I've been doing. But at that particular time, especially during lockdown, it seemed like uh, the right thing to be doing. Yeah, yeah, of course. You know. Is the invisible psychedelic thread a kind of a well-known concept, or is it? No, it's just something I kind of thought about. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but again, that, yeah, that's only something if I'm really sitting down and trying to write about the work, which I think in a lot of art practices you're encouraged to do. Yes, yeah, to kind of conceptualise it and actually yeah. give it some kind of meaning or mm. whatever. But I think it's more just trying to think about the reasons how i've got to that point yeah yeah um so yeah that that came from there i like it yeah i suppose if you um if you're going to exhibit stuff then you need to you don't need to but uh, uh, some sort of backstory is expected I yeah suppose, so. yeah uh, even if it's just for context you know mm. like i'm not a massive fan as a viewer of other people's art in knowing everything about it yeah anyway i don't want some big kind of detailed explanation about mm. a piece of artwork i'd rather experience it first yeah. and enjoy it yeah and then maybe read afterwards yeah maybe where or why or some kind of context yeah but i don't need that at the beginning no no and i think it's quite nice to let people just have their own yeah yeah idea of what it might be or what it means yeah. to them yeah yeah exactly what i love about you as a person neil <laughs> is a sense of playfulness 
And I see it sometimes in your work. Um, I, I really like the, the monoblock collection. Ah. I didn't actually know they were called that, but if you could just explain. Yeah. The monoblock collection is photographs of colourful plastic chairs and tables found in Vietnam. I mean, they're, they're all over the world. But because I lived in Vietnam and I was seeing them everywhere, I did this little series over about a year and a half where I was mostly riding around on my motorbike or I might have been walking or whatever. I was normally just on a way to somewhere. And whenever I spotted this furniture, I wanted to get a picture of it. But I was interested more in the furniture not being used Mm. because it was kind of street furniture that would be used for the little sandwich places, roadside, or somewhere the Vietnamese just have a little coffee Mm. and they move on. So it was a quick moving kind of function that they have. But I was really interested in them empty Mm. they became like these kind of portraits of i see them as characters i almost see them as people or beings right because they all kind of had their own little personalities (laughs) you know some of them are really bashed up and scratched (laughs) and kind of like looks a bit kind of raggedy and there was other ones that were like just sitting there almost kind of quite proud and a bit kind of like yeah we're running this place so and just the way they were it was just the way i was seeing them basically yeah yeah so it was kind of interesting because I'm photographing people most of the time. That's what I do. But I really like this idea of not photographing people. Mm. But in a weird way, they ended up becoming people, or becoming characters or personalities. Yeah. yeah. Um, so well, they're, they're inanimate objects in yeah. a way, but they're not because yeah, so yeah. Many, so many people have graced those. Yeah, and then that- and there's something about when you separate and get people out of the scene, mm. you can really look at them because there's there's no distractions. Because when you see people in a in a street scene, yeah, it is a little bit distracting. Well, yeah, humans are drawn to other humans. So sure, that's the first sure. Thing we we make judgments yeah. about what people are wearing and what they're doing there mm. and all the rest of it. So I really like this idea of just stripping all that back. And yeah, it became like these series of portraits. Mm. It came to a point where I was kind of slightly obsessed about them as well. Right. Like I'd spot them like a hundred meters away. <laughs> I'd be like, oh, I'll go and check that one out. And then it was spilled into other countries as well. Like, I was still living in Vietnam and I'd come back to England in the summer and I'd be like photographing some white furniture, plastic furniture in someone's <laughs> garden. And then I remember I did a job out in like Togo. There's loads of it out there. Wow. So I was just like, oh, brilliant. Well, plastic furniture? Or yeah, plastic furniture. Monoblock? Uh, monoblocks. Oh, wow. Because okay. monoblock comes from um, mono one, it's one mold okay. of plastic. Self explanatory. Yeah. One of the images is a, a monoblock struggling under the weight of a double mattress. I think oh, really yes. Made yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they, yeah, that was the thing. They were used for like other purposes <laughs> yeah. as well, like drying um, sugarcane and things like that. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, the mattress one's funny. Yeah. I mean, it actually led to another series that I did back in London when I got back to England uh, about the British telephone boxes. Yes, yeah. So an, an ode to the British telephone box. You know, again, when you isolate them and don't have any people in the shot, they become... It, it was along the similar kind of theme. Yeah, yeah. That was. I really enjoyed looking at that little collection. I, but I particularly enjoy the fact that the only people that are in those shots are the ladies that are on the um yes, the cards, the calling cards. The way. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 Which, which you know, especially around central London, those calling cards are still you it's know really yeah. still a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how long the telephone boxes are going to be there. There's a quiet removal of them. Yeah. Yeah. Because I've even been back to places. And seen that the box has been removed right, in okay. London. Yeah. Another photo, it's a song diptych number three. Absolutely love it. The cucumbers on the styrofoam tubs. 
it's great. I mean, I I did wonder. It screams saucy seaside postcards to me, and I just wonder if if I didn't know you personally, would it still? <laughs> That's so funny. That's so funny that you should pick up on that because I've I think I've still got postcards that you sent me. You went to Spain, Magaluf or yeah, something Magaluf like that, and, and you sent me some postcard back with Did just really? boobs oh, on a okay. beach type oh. thing. Um, so yeah, that, well, it's funny that you should like that one. This leads me on to uh, I, brought, I brought you another one actually because I just wanted to bring you another uh, saucy seaside postcard to say thank you for thank you for being interviewed. So that's... Oh, amazing! Oh, brilliant photographer! It won't take me long to stick me tripod up, Lancashire lass. E lad, not now. You just you you just get my picture took. <laughs> No, Sorry, no. I was a bit still struggling too to read the, uh, Should I read it again? Struggling with the dialect. <laughs> it was right. <laughs> yeah, it's important having a bit of playfulness in the way that you try mm. and view the world. I, I can't say I'm always thinking that way, but it's a healthy way to try and look and yeah, have, well, a, have a bit of a laugh as well. Of course. Well, it's in your nature, so yeah. it's, it's bound to come out. Yeah. Um, and it's very enjoyable when it does come out. So on a slightly different thing, I wanted to talk about bloody chunks so yeah bloody chunks which was documenting the metal scene mm. or a metal scene mm. in saigon right or ho chi minh as they communists like to call it now yeah so we moved there in um 2009 lived there for six years and pretty much from 2010 i went to an outdoor metal gig in some old sports stadium it's a one-day festival so big yeah, it was pretty big. I mean, I, I don't know how many thousands of people there. It wasn't like 20,000 people, but it was definitely... It was mm. the biggest gig I went to out there, actually. Mm. I'd say 3,000 people. Okay. I don't know. I, mm. I'm not very good with numbers, but... Point being, it was kind of like rock slash metal. Yeah. Which was quite popular there at the time. I didn't know about that. The interesting thing for me as well was, as a photographer who'd spent a long time or spent my photography career up until then photographing youth culture for magazines and myself once we were living there i was like oh there's got to be there's got to be something going on here that's kind of a little bit under the radar a bit interesting and that was the first thing i saw because they had their kind of they had this sort of v-pop over there which is their version of k-pop and i just thought there's got to be it's got to be something and anyway so I, i heard about this metal gig Went down, had a great time, really enjoyed it. Got some really nice colour pictures on digital. And uh, yeah, it sort of went from there, really. I started finding out about some smaller gigs, which were always a lot more fun, in all different parts of the city. And just started going along and just every time, it might have been one gig a month or something like that, mm. sort of little DIY affairs. Yeah. The group that I was photographing, it was less rock. Okay. It was more metal. Yeah. And then it went grindcore and death metal. Okay. And, so thrash was it a particular group that you i started to recognize faces they were starting to go oh look foreigner guy with the cameras here again slowly people coming up to me and chatting and you know i started to get to know some of the the guys in the bands yeah because they're all interchanging a little bit yeah i don't know if that's a metal scene thing but in smaller scenes i think it is where they fall out and set up a new band and yeah you know all one guy's in three different bands you know because there aren't there weren't loads of musicians what were the names of the bands disgusted uh vu which is w-u-u mm. but it's pronounced vu there's an interesting backstory to that name the French colonialists in the 50s, when they were finally kind of defeated by the Vietnamese insurgents, 
much like what happened later on with mm-hmm. the Americans. Mm-hmm. But the French had it first because they were colonizers for about 150 years in Vietnam, up until about the 50s, 1950s. There was a revolutionary called Bok Vu. He got tortured by the French and he kind of got had limbs cut off and all the rest of it. So the metal band named after this, you know, yeah, Vietnamese yeah. hero. Yeah. Basically, after going for, you know, a year or so, taking pictures, I started to get friends with the main guy, Chum, Chum Loki. He was instrumental in the whole thing. He was a multi-instrumentalist. He was in multiple bands, and he had a record label in Vietnam called Bloody Chunks. Yeah, they were just putting out CDs. Yeah. Not records, per se, but they were putting out CDs of... Just the local bands. Brilliant. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I, I ended up calling it Bloody Chunks in homage to... Fantastic. You know, it's a good name as well. When I was looking at the pictures, you, you feel like you can smell the venue. You know, they're really... Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because I started in colour, digital colour, mm. and after about two years of shooting it in colour, I came home to England and I brought back with me a, my Fuji medium format film camera. I wanted to try black and white film because mm. the sound and the venues and the sweat, and it's so hot. It's hot in Vietnam mm. at the best of times. So some of the venues, you know, there's fans in bare feet mm. at a metal gig, brilliant. which is always kind of just funny and brilliant. Mm. Unusual. Yeah, um, unusual. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> so um, you're quite nimble though, moshing, can't you? <laughs> yeah. You can fly through the air. Yeah. Not, not kick someone in the head <laughs> yeah. with your boot. Yeah. So, yeah, I kind of started photographing it in 2012 till about 14 in black and white film. Mm. I was processing everything in my house at the time or in the bathroom, which is really challenging because when you process film with the chemicals, you have to keep it at a constant temperature, which is okay. 21 degrees. Now, Vietnam was at that time, I don't know, it was in the late 20s, yeah, yeah, temperature yeah. in the house. Yeah. So the first few rolls I was processing, they were kind of getting... It's almost like the chemicals are cooking a little bit and it kind of over-processes the films. It makes the blacks too black and the whites even whiter. So it it can just screw it up a little bit. So anyway, it took me a while and then I realised that I I could go in the bedroom with the air con on at 21 degrees. I figured out a system in the end. Yeah, yeah. But but, but quite DIY the way you had to approach the bedroom. Oh, totally DIY. Which is a very fitting circumstance. Yeah, no, it seemed to sort of all make sense, really. yeah, yeah. And I was buying chemicals initially in downtown Saigon photography shops. They were really hard to find because there weren't many dark rooms. Yeah, yeah. Um, like here in the UK, there's a lot of people doing home processing still. Not so many years ago. But anyway, so it's kind of complicated to find chemicals. But I remember going, I got taken in the back of one of these photography shops. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got some uh, fixer. Normally it's like a chemical, but he was like, he just gave me like this massive kilo of crystals okay which was thick it was fixer crystals but mm. i'd never used it like that you have to dissolve it down you have developer you have stop bath you have fixer okay those three stages so you develop you stop the development and then you fix it which okay. is like kind of sealing it yeah the film yeah so it just stops developing and stop bath i couldn't find so i need to stop that development and it uses the same chemical as vinegar. Okay. But I don't want to use balsamic vinegar or something right. like that. But you can buy clear vinegar. Yeah, yeah. You okay. know, so I ended up so using... So it was all a bit of an experiment then. Yeah, you know? I, yeah, I did some research online at the time, and I used clear vinegar. And it felt quite good to use something like a natural, yeah, yeah. you know, something from the supermarket anyway. Yeah. So, yeah, the whole thing was totally like that. 
brilliant. And, and, I mean, uh, was it successful from the from the start? Everything went okay in the films. Yeah, processing. yeah, processing. That, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I made some mistakes, like, oh, yeah, as okay. I said, with the temperature and a few films got ruined. Oh uh, shit, really? Yeah, but I would I might be shooting ten rolls at a gig per gig. Yeah, I might do a little test. You clip a little bit off the film and process it. Oh, that didn't right. work. Clip again, you know what I mean? You, oh, so you don't have to dive straight. But I might have ruined a few yeah. roles, yeah. Yeah, okay. And, right. you know, yeah. but I was confident that I had enough images in the rest of the films. Yeah, 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 yeah. Is it the same venue or is it different No, venues? no, they were... There was a couple of venues that were repeat venues. Like in the centre of Saigon, you might have, like, these brand-new shopping malls with, like, designer shops and stuff like that. But when you drive out to the, like, fringes of the city where the Vietnamese... Are all living and operating, and there's like really old local shopping centers, okay, yeah, right. And there was a couple of gigs in like just the top floor of some really old shopping center, right, which is brilliant, you yeah, know? yeah. And then there was one in like a like a real 70s looking disco tech with like loads of mirrors wow. around the walls and stuff like that. Wow. So they were just getting the gigs wherever they could. And they were kind of like guerrilla gigs, some of them, because I think I read on the, the your site you said about um, them sort of getting moved on by the police or yeah. shut down by the yeah, police. Yeah, 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 yeah. There was a lot of that going on. Even even a gig that they'd sort of planned of a local promoter or the person that owned the place, if the local police kind of sniffed that there was a bit of money being made, right? you know, there's enough fans there. Mm. It might be 40, 50 people turning up yeah. to go to the gig. They want their cut, you know, yeah. of the door or I mean, whatever. They wanted their cut, and if I weren't going to get their cut, they were going to shut it down. I was thinking when I was looking at the pictures, I mean, I, I, I imagine you must have been having great fun. I loved it. Yeah. It's, it's funny because I'd never really been a metal fan mm. per se, but I absolutely loved it. I just loved the energy mm. and the kind of... Just so heavy and hardcore, mm, and just mm. making your ears ring. Yeah, I, I, it's funny you say that because I was thinking that while I was looking at them. I was thinking I could almost, I can smell the venue, and I can almost feel my ears ringing. You know, like I almost know what it would have been like. Yeah, yeah, and, and and I think for me, I found it quite exciting because I'd get on my motorbike, and initially I was going out on my own. Me and me and my camera were going mm. to have a little adventure. Yeah. And we were going to experience something that most other people weren't experiencing. Yeah. In Vietnam. Yeah. yeah. Even Vietnamese people. It was yeah, kind of, yeah. you know, it was a proper little subculture. Yeah. That I would go in for like two or three hours and then come home and you'd be like, you know, life carries on around, but you'd just been in this quite intense yeah. happening. But also I could really feel the release from the, the, the kids that are into it. You know, like you could feel this kind of letting go of I don't know whether it's pent up anger mm. or aggression whatever yeah. because culturally the Vietnamese are not outwardly aggressive people mm. you know really beautiful nature but there's a you know like everybody you need some kind of release uh, yeah yeah definitely I don't know if I said before I had Tim Page's Nam book yeah from quite an early age and of course you know around that time there was lots of films on the uh, the subject but yeah that that book really made a, a big impact with me i didn't really know much about tim page at the time but you know i used to look at that a lot and it's interesting i didn't even know that he was british um but anyway so i when i went to vietnam i was just curious about that history um and i was so pleasantly surprised not pleasantly surprised a weird way of putting it but how it was just irrelevant to their yeah, life yeah just, no, it's no, just, no no you're, you're, you're absolutely right like the vietnam it's defined by the war. 
if you've never been there, why would you think otherwise? Because mm. it was, you know, it, mm. it's a massive war that the world knows about. Mm. And even the name of it is not correct. Because exactly. the Vietnamese call it the American War. Yeah. Um, which is more correct because yep. that kind of war was brought upon them. Yeah. So, and you're absolutely correct in the sense that it's a very young country mm. when you go there. And I think at the time of taking those pictures, I, I read online that 60% of the population were under 30 wow. in 2010, which is quite a that's, young, that's quite a young, vibrant yeah, kind of energy. Yeah. And that's something that me and Julia felt when we first went there mm. in 2007 on mm. holiday was this kind of wow this is such a kind of like it's such an interesting place to be there was such a kinetic mm. energy yeah there of kind of change as well you know like yeah okay everyone knows us for the war but mm. there's some really interesting things going on here yeah um and still is i mean we were out there christmas 20 22 just just gone and um it's even more getting developed and not necessarily in a bad way it's just it's just progression there's progression there's positive progression there's movement yeah it's moving and it and it's kind of got that entrepreneurial spirit where people try things and set up businesses and Mm. there's just a lot of movement going on yeah forward forward yeah totally yeah yeah. lots of forward motion yeah no one's looking back at the minute yeah yeah it's true you know and then there's always oh no it's not gonna work Mm. oh that business you know i've done that you know what i mean it's just that they they felt like a positive up energy we felt it when we were there yeah yeah Uh, constantly it's great which can't you know if you're open to it as a visitor Mm. you can't help but kind of go like absorb that yeah and go yeah 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 i'll have someone not to not so that i can't do that yeah (laughs) yeah i think i think it's more important as you get older yeah yeah but yeah when we were were staying in uh fukok we were there for about a week uh and we we went to there's a bar that we sort of go to a couple of times then we started getting chatting to people met this lovely bunch of people um and then they took us out one night they went so we went to the local karaoke um, place. I mean, I don't know what you call those buildings, but there's they're, they're big old buildings with a lot of a lot of rooms, aren't they? And yes. that was amazing. That was the first time I've been to a proper, proper karaoke. karaoke. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, but they love karaoke. You know, it's like, yeah. uh, what do yeah. you want to drink? Well, just, whatever you want, and drink such good fun. And then you want some balloons and oh yeah, I love a balloon. The biggest <laughs> biggest balloon I've ever done in my life. If you thought I was going to die, but yeah, it was so nice to spend spend the evening with these. You know, these they were quite young. They're in their twenties, I suppose. That's so funny. You did that because when we first went there, we went to Fukuoka, two thousand and seven, and we ended up in a karaoke with some. You know. Oh really? Yeah. yeah, just some locals. They were like, yeah. "Yeah, come, come and check it out." And Could we had, well have been the same place. We had such a laugh. Yeah. Just before we left in 2015, I did a, a solo show, and I remember it, it's kind of it was so weird. This was something that was kind of constant in Vietnam. The way that the government kind of controls everybody, because mm. it's kind of a similar model to the Chinese. Okay. It's kind of like sort of red capitalism. It's still socialist republic or communist, but it kind of controls people by you don't ever really know what the rules are. It's a little bit blurry. Okay. So, for example, foreigners are not allowed to have a exhibition oh. without the permission of the government, oh, like the sort okay. of, I don't know, culture ministry or something right. like that. So this can't have been that easy to set up then. This yeah, so I, I sort of... I had some friends that were running a little gallery. It was a local lady and an American guy. 
And they were like, do you want to do a show? And I'm like, well, what's the, you know, what's the deal here? I don't really know. And the other thing was, I, I didn't, I didn't want to get the metal scene in trouble. Yeah, yeah, okay. By yeah, sort yeah, of, well, yeah, yeah, by you, showing them doing their thing. True, yeah, you have responsibility. It's to just a bit of a grey area. It's yeah. just hard to know what was the right. Anyway, I spoke to a few several people and I spoke to Chum. I just wanted to get their blessing in a way before course, I do yeah, a show yeah. about yeah. them. Yeah. And, um, they they were kind of they were cool about it. They were like they they were like yeah. There's lots of Vietnamese people that don't know about yeah. you know this music, and it'd be interesting for them to see. Did they express concerns in, in as much as what we're you know talking about? No. Oh okay. No, no. So I got the got the green light, and um, the the <laughs> the cool thing was we had a, a metal after show party. So Chum organised some local bands. So we did. We had the pri- we had the private view mm. in the gallery, and then literally a five minute walk away, um, there was a venue that was hired, and Chairman about four or five other bands did a metal show. Brilliant, and it was so good because it kind of so there was a bunch of foreigners that came and a bunch of Vietnamese that came to the private view, yeah. and then managed to take everybody down to this metal show. Right. So it was like exposing. A whole bunch of new people yeah, to yeah, metal. Yeah. And even Julia had never actually been to a show. And she yeah. was like, oh, my God, this is so good. <laughs> and, yeah, it was a lot of fun. So it wasn't too much red tape to, to cut through to, to get it to happen? We, just, have... we just did it. Oh, you just did it? Yeah. Oh, okay. I know. We didn't get any permission. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Well, yeah, that's... Yeah. Sure. I, I don't think do we were too kind of advertised, as it were. No, fair enough. We just yeah. sort of did it. And yeah, yeah, kept it low we, 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 were, we were good to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One thing um, Chum did do, which was great, there was there was one little festival he did called Death Fest, mm. um, where he actually got bands from abroad coming over, metal bands. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, so that was the first time that metal bands had come into Vietnam to play. Wow. Yeah, so... I mean, they were sort of, you know, they weren't massive named bands, but mm. it was just like a little one-day festival. So we had bands from Japan, uh, Malaysia, Thailand. Amazing. And then some American Amer- American metal band came over as well. So that was really good for the local scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it actually brilliant for the foreign bands as well. Yeah. Because they yeah. were loving it. Yeah. They course, were loving yeah. getting this kind of attention and the love from the Vietnamese metal. Amazing. That's so cool. He's, he's the man. He's still going. He was still playing. He had a pause and a break for a few years. He's only like in his early 30s or something now, but he feels like the granddad of metal over there because he's been doing it since he was a teenager. And I really want him to be playing abroad. Mm. It's quite difficult, though, I think, right. to get visas out. Mm. But he did play in Indonesia. He played at some big metal festival in Indonesia and maybe Malaysia, Singapore. So I think locally he's been out the country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, he's so talented. I'd love to see him come yeah. and play at some big, yeah, yeah. you know, some big festival. Yeah, yeah. It'd be interesting to see how the how the scene's sort of developing or has developed. Yeah, know. there was kind of like a new. There, there was a whole bunch of new people, obviously. Mm. Um, there, the gig that I went to. It's only a small gig, but. Um, it was like more tattoos going on, right. and it was more more fashion in a way. Right, okay. it's interesting. Right, before it was like, oh look, there's a picture there on my wall. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. If you look closely, the guy's got work trousers on and black paint and shoes. Oh really? But his top <laughs> off, he had a tattoo on his back called Death, like <laughs> Death. But but he was but he was wearing. Come from work. 
So, so back then it was kind of like it was kind of tattoos and stuff still, but but that's such it was a, a good look. The, the, the work trousers and the, and the leather shoes, it's fucking brilliant. With a massive death tattoo yeah. on his back. <laughs> I think back then it felt a little less fashion, almost a bit more like a hardcore scene. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. It's reminding me of like sort of bit minor more, threat or something. Yeah, like bit, that, yeah, yeah, exactly. It felt a bit more hardcore. Um, whereas this time, it, I, I could see the kids sort of getting into the right. the metal fashion as well. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, and you know, great. I mean, if it's just a new wave of kids that are getting into it, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the main thing. Yeah, and then the style. The style sort of evolves as well, anyway. And, yeah, know, and I think they've got they've got they've got a couple of they've got a couple of little festivals and things happening this year. Cool, um, actually this month I think, and in mm. August I'd love to go back for like a big yeah like a big festival because I I feel like I just I want to keep connecting with it when I can. Yeah, totally. What I was going to say, is there a way of sort of keeping tabs on it? Because it's it's quite a small scene. It's not like there's a website called Hehe Metal, right? Okay, and and I think the umbrellas widened a little bit. Yeah, from the conversations I was having Christmas, cool punk and a little bit of hardcore. Yeah, is being a bit more encompassed as yeah. well. Whereas when when I went before, they were sort of getting really niche about the type of metal. Right. Okay, yeah, you know, yeah, amongst themselves. Yeah, yeah. Whereas I think the difference now is it seems to have sort of opened up a little bit mm. and encompassing a slightly bigger group of yeah. hardcore metal punk, which I think is kind of a healthier place to be. Yeah, well, I, I think for... And maybe, maybe that's the way they survive, going back to what you were talking about earlier about kind of niche tribes. Mm. Um, it was called alternative music back, well, exactly, in, the, back yeah. in the mid '80s, yeah. and that was an umbrella term, wasn't exactly. it? Yeah, that's for, right. for all of the things, yeah. you know, that we've talked about: rockabilly, punk, yeah. goth, uh, you know, whatever, whatever we were doing. There was um, the Agincourt Camberley right. yeah. Friday yeah. night. Yeah, was it once a month or something? Yeah, yeah alternative yeah. night. Yeah, it was yeah. Probably which is brilliant, that, it? and it literally just drew in all of the freaks and geeks yeah. And yeah, from, yeah, yeah, yeah. from all the surrounding towns. Yeah. To have a meeting place. Yeah. I get emails intermittently from foreigners going to Vietnam right. and asking about connecting with the metal scene or right, okay. going to see a gig. Right. How can I go and see a gig? Brilliant. Because they've just right. seen the pictures online. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So I, I, I always put them in touch with whoever's organising something Yeah, no, that's brilliant. Yeah, that's nice. So it must be really nice to be a, a bit of a conduit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm, I'm always wanting to shine some light on, mm. on the scene over there. I can sense a frustration. It's not quite mm. ever quite kicked off mm. for, for, for some over there yeah but maybe that's just the nature of a subculture as well yeah true. It, sort of, it sort of stays underground in well some, yeah some respects I mean, yeah as much as you want more people to know about the thing you've got going on the scene you've got going on or, or what you're all about at the same time once it starts getting a bit bigger and if it gets a bit more mainstream then all of a sudden it's like hang on a minute this is our thing it's right. a bit of a double-edged sword which is it? what exactly what happened with rave wasn't it, it kind of exploded oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it started with the acid house and Mm. then, you know, Ray yeah. kind of made it explode mainstream. Mm. But I think with that, I think because that was a community of people that had come from all sorts of different walks of life even, no one felt like they owned it. Whereas no. if you're uh, if you're into one of those sort of, you know, um, particular things, whether you're a punk or a skinhead or something like that or whatever, then you're a little bit, maybe a little bit more precious about yeah, that's true. your thing. You know? It's true. And, and, and does drugs kind of blow that door open I think it must do I think it's got to have a because that was very much a part of the kind of rave scene wasn't it because mm. because I, 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 I do remember like when I was right in here at the beginning 
kind of feeling like yeah i'm i was really in something like mm. a like something that was new something that was like a new way of thinking mm. yeah, Be- yeah because of the way that the drugs made everyone's mind yeah. open and expansive yeah it kind of made things seem possible mm. and as you say it brought a whole load of people together that wouldn't normally maybe hang out together yeah. or you would have conversations with people you wouldn't have normally done yeah, yeah. been so open with yeah we were talking about this earlier, just about, I suppose, youth subcultures. And in a way, you could say that the youth tribes, as we knew them growing up, punks, skins, mods, goths, rockabillies, seems to be a thing of the past in this country, particularly. Maybe it says something about the way the British subcultures or, you know, different tribes are evolving. Like, we're not happy here to just stay in those defined genres mm. like if you think about dance music yeah how it's always evolving always morphing always mixing with another type of dance music and creates yeah, a yeah. new one yeah it's forever changing and True. that kind of makes sense that you know you might go to some country in europe and they, they, they still really love a sort of like a mod scene or something like that because they maybe haven't been through it the way that we went through it here mm. in the uk the and, first time. Yeah, and possibly rave culture, or more specifically E, perhaps, you know, brought people together that wouldn't have got together. For instance, stories about football hooligans hugging on the terraces yep. on a Saturday because they'd been up all night and they'd been out to a rave and they'd done E. You know, I'm yeah. sure that's not that... Um, no, that that did happen. I mean, I remember me and my mates going up to Labyrinth in Dalston, the Four Aces Club, yeah. and... That was our first club to go to a rave. And we drove up in uh, our friend Kev's 2CV from Fleet in Hampshire. And uh, we were a bit too scared to park in Dalston. So we parked (laughs) up at Highbury Corner and walked about half a mile or a mile or whatever it was. And um, when we were in the club, it was like, you know, a lot of like geezers, like shirts off, you know, sweaty because they'd taken a... A dove and their bodies were overheating, <laughs> and um, and everyone's like, "All right, mate, where are you from?" You know, and we realised quite quickly that most people were all just—it was defined by North, East, South, West, London. Right, okay, and we we're like, yeah. "We're from Fleet," <laughs> and um, they were like, "Where? Where's that?" And then we were like, "Outside <laughs> London," and they were like, "Brilliant!" You know, they were totally up for it. Yeah. But but yeah, the, the, you could see characters that you know might norm, not normally have been so open. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we we looked a bit sort of hippie and a bit yeah. hippie rave, yeah. and we were suddenly in London, you know. And uh, but it was all totally cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Brilliant. And what was um, what DJs were, were playing when you were? Um, Mickey playing? Finn. Okay. Um, at Labyrinth itself, I can't I can't remember. But it's um, pretty much sort of hardcore. Nice. It was hardcore because um, it, it would have been uh, 91. So, yeah, it's rave. It's yeah, proper yeah, rave okay. in its early incarnation. Yeah. I imagine there's many rave tunes you could choose, but if you could just sort of choose one at the moment, what would that be? That would be Your Love by The Prodigy. Okay. And... Um, sorry, my son's been dicking around with my phone, and now I've got these 
fucking like ads popping up every 15 minutes <laughs> and it wasn't there before he's downloaded something um sorry um yeah your love um the prodigy song reminds me of um raving on uh, an old air base in oxford um this kind of yeah free party thing that happened and um yeah, it's just it, it sort of still kind of sends tingles down my spine. It's it's such an up kind of song. And uh yeah, it reminds me of uh, our friend Kev as well. Brilliant. My rave buddy at the time. Love it. Love it. I remember when we were going to some free parties. We were going to them in sort of Hampshire, but we were we went to one one time Bath Bristol. We drove from Hampshire like after the pub closing. And we would, you would drive literally to the rough area. You'd get word. I don't even know how you got word because there was no mobile phones mm. then. Well, there was, but we weren't really using them. But anyway, you would be listening for the music. You'd be listening for the distant yeah, yeah. thumping sound in in the field somewhere in the yeah. darkness. And I remember actually, interestingly, I remember at the beginning, say ninety, the police were sort of there, but on the fringes. They were almost there just to sort of make sure you didn't park in the road. You, know, okay. you, you might have parked up on the side of some, you know, country path or something yeah. like that. And I remember they were sort of observing, Observe, but they didn't, because yeah. at that stage it wasn't out of hand. Mm. You know, they weren't. It was only later on when things yeah. started. Yeah, more people started doing it, yeah. but they started to shut them down. Yeah, yeah, okay. I suppose they were waiting for instruction, and no one really knew what this was. Exactly, so, yeah. It was a curiosity yeah, at the yeah. beginning. It looks like people are having a good time. And if there's time, not too many people, it's not mm, so. Young people are enjoying themselves. This could get dangerous. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, and ended up with Castle Morton. Yeah, yeah. 50, 40, 50,000 people. Wow, incredible. I mean, we, we know people that went to that. Andrew. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah our yeah, friends. Yeah. I, I, I was abroad, actually, at the time. I didn't go. But I heard it was pretty Very interesting epic. Stories. I yeah. think it was after that that... The government completely yeah that was the shut it that down. was the death knell wasn't it pretty yeah. much of that yeah those massive gatherings yeah. yeah um yeah but I think uh from what I gather the the a lot of the free parties and the the raves it was I think it was more the um wasn't it the big the heavy the heavy drug dealers moving in for a slice of the action and then yeah that's when things got a little bit no too, that's true that's true know, money there, there's money an interesting first. doc on it at the minute um Essex murders all about the oh, right, Essex yeah drug dealers that were kind of were dealing in ecstasy and it was when they all sort of got they mm. moved, you're right they moved in and wanted a piece of the action and mm. were running all the drugs it all got sort of out of hand and mm. a bit dark mm, really dark and yeah. violence starts as yeah, well then yeah, yeah. between rival yeah. gangs I forgot to ask you did you ever take a picture of Terry Scott at the fair no. no Terry Scott Terry Scott from... Sorry, I was looking at this because we were... Too, we were too, I was too about no, but Terry Scott from... Terry and June. Terry and yeah, June, yeah, big guy. Yeah, he was at the he was at Fleet Fair oh, twice, I think. Yeah. Cool, all right, well, I think, we're, I think we're done, mate. Thank you, Neil. It's been good fun. It's been great fun, yeah. Thanks, I, re- I, I really appreciate your, your time today. It's been, it's been great. Yeah, enjoyed it. <laughs>